as you can see, Ruth is not feeling that much better yet. She's better than this morning. And she'll make every effort to get to see certainly those of you who know her from the past sometime tomorrow, but it's unclear whether that will actually be as teaching or just to come in and say hi. Um, so I'm going to attempt to maintain a little bit of continuity from her talk last night. I was reflecting on what would be useful to talk about with many of you who are, relatively speaking, new to this practice. Some of you really new. And it seemed to me that one of the most valuable things to make explicit, which has certainly helped me a lot, has to do more with attitudes than any particular technique. It has to do with understanding that um, the simplicity of Vipassana meditation, one of the beauties of it, is that it's so plain and unadorned. It can be easily overlooked because of that. And in a way, what it amounts to is that it's beginning with what we have. That is, to start this practice is to begin with what we have. And I'm afraid that a few of the things that I have to say are such incredible platitudes. Uh, Yet, If you really listen to them, I hope that you find that they aren't. In terms of listening, I'd like to encourage you to make what we're doing now. Right now I'm doing the talking, but in a few moments I'd like to hear what you have to say. To make that of one piece with the meditation practice. So that this is talking and listening meditation. Just a few hints on how to help that happen. I'm doing it too. I'm just suggesting that perhaps you do it along with me. And that is, I got a sense of my body. So there is any tension or resistance and relaxed it. Listen to where my mind was, any particular moods that I was in. And so, as much as possible, I was able to enter into a a steadiness or a attentiveness to you, to what I'm saying, to the relevance of what I'm saying, so that it stays very close to your experience, as close as possible. Knowing all along that from moment to moment that gets disrupted. And so it's a real practice in listening, and listening and meditation are the same thing. And so in order to really hear what's being said at this point by me, you have to hear yourself. Whereas if you're not aware of the play of your own mind and body, then that will come between us and you won't even know it. Or if a lot of our time and energy is spent on reactions, I agree with this and I don't agree with that, which is fine, just know what's happening. And so if you move with your reactions to what's being said, then it's meditative. 
that means it's work. And I know at this point it would be tempting to just relax and be filled up. And what I'd like is a, a higher level of attention than that. You can relax, and perhaps some of it will be, I don't know, nourishing, I hope so. But it's a more active process. If we do it together, if we meet each other, then the quality of what goes on will be different than if uh, I'm just talking to the moon and you know, you're just uh, taking a break from a hard day. Hey, so this practice occurs to me that the part of the beauty of it is that we begin with what we have. What does he mean by that? That's obviously, what else are we going to begin with? But let's be really simple-minded about it. Let's just really, as if we were from another planet almost, and attend to, let's say, our arrival time here on Friday night. Each one of us brings something that's different. We come in with a certain kind of body. Different shapes and ages and levels of energy. Painful bodies and bodies that are humming along. Our mind is in a certain state. We're in different moods. Our taste in clothing certain kinds of parkers. Almost everyone has a vest, but there are a few variations. Whatever it is, that's what we bring, that's what we brought to this retreat. And Ruth explored the motivation for coming to a place like this in the first place. Here's, a, to me, an extremely profound notion. Whenever you break in on yourself. At any point in time, you can do it right now at this moment, we find ourselves being a certain kind of person. You know, you didn't ask to be this way, to be born a certain way, but here we are. You have these kinds of tendencies. I like this, but I don't like that. If we all went to a movie, few some would walk out and someone would come out crying and you know, why? And no matter what we would look at, food and clothes. So we from moment to moment, if you just stop, this is who we find that we are. We find ourselves being a certain kind of person. It's out of our control. It's sort of come upon us. All our tastes and our aversions and aspirations, modes of dress and preferences and eatings, it's, it's endless. And each one of us finds ourselves being that unique being who is that, who is you. I know this sounds very obvious, but I mean, it is. What else can you be? The first time, time I learned this, for me in a very important way, was some years ago in a previous incarnation. I was a working as a social psychologist and most of my research was done in mental hospitals with locked wards, schizophrenic people, people called schizophrenics. Long term, who would live there sometimes 20 or 30 years, they were inmates, called inmates. And 
pretty removed from the kinds of people that we're used to seeing out on the street. And I would do field research in that kind of setting. That is, I would spend time with people like that and as best as I could because of difficult, real difficulties in communication, at least verbal. And got to the point where I was quite comfortable in coming in each day and like an anthropologist, which is exactly what it was, except instead of it being a primitive tribe, it would be the lock ward of this VA hospital. One day I was at a party in Cambridge and there was an anthropologist there whose books I had read. Who he, he had studied, he and his family, he and his wife and three children had gone into the Amazon and done anthropological research with a tribe of Indians who had killed everybody who had tried to come in before. Anthropologists, government officials, nobody got out alive. And the only thing that people knew about them is that it's best to stay away. <laughs> and he went in with his wife and three kids and they lived there and they had this book with photographs and, you know, the kids playing with other kids and, you know, they're all hanging out, just having a good time. And it was an amazing book to read. And here's this man who wrote this book. I, I met him and so we started to talk and I was very um, impressed by how fearless he was. And I told him, I said, you know, how it must have taken extraordinary courage to bring your, or I don't know, or stupidity, but anyway, to bring your wife and children into this place where everyone else was being killed off. No one wanted to go near the, this tribe. And he said, no, we had no fear. It was no problem. We just went in and we're all very comfortable in situations like that. We've done it before. And I said, wow, really? I'm impressed. He says, yeah, it didn't take courage on my part. I'm really comfortable there. We had a wonderful three years they lived there. The book was just a great joy writing. Hmm, great. And he said, well, what do you do? And I, first of all, I told him, well, boy, I would never do that. I mean, that would just frighten me to... I mean, I wouldn't even get near thinking about it. I'd be terrified to go near people like that. They could kill me, you know, kill my body. So then he said, well, what do you do? So I said, well, I do research. And he said, what kind? I told him... Uh, mainly locked work on lock ward of a mental hospital, chronic people called schizophrenics, chronic schizophrenics, long term. And he backed away from me at a mile a minute. He said, boy, you'd never catch me in a place like that, doing anything like that. Are you kidding? I wouldn't go near that. Wow, how do you do it? And I looked at him, I said, how do you do it? And what I realized is that I, I didn't earn anything, he didn't earn anything. It sort of just it came pretty easily to me, to tell you the truth. So I was that kind of a person who can do that kind of a thing. And he was the kind of person who can do the other kind of a thing. And I couldn't do his thing and he couldn't do my thing. And it really helped me understand a lot about fear and personal differences and starting points. So we come to this practice of Vipassana meditation and stripped of the technical language and adornments. Essentially, what you're being asked to do is to take stock of yourself. To just see, just what actually am I? What did I bring into this building? And, and the simpler, the better. And we start with something so fundamental as the breath. 
If you think of it as just a concentration exercise, I think you're limiting it. When we begin to pay attention to the breath, it often is described that way as a concentration exercise. It certainly is that, but there's much more to it. You're noticing that you're breathing. Each one of us shares that. We bring that with us. We're breathing. Mm. Try not doing it. See what happens. Sometimes that realization can improve your concentration very quickly, faster than some of the technical hints. When you suddenly realize that I'm paying attention to a process which, if it didn't happen, I wouldn't happen. This breath, we can't go too long without it, you know. And so from a very profound point of view, what we're doing, we're noticing, we're breathing in and we're breathing out. And this is the way the breath happens. And then a suggestion is made, well, why don't you walk, take a walk? Okay, I'll do that. And then we lift and move in place and we walk. Do you see the similarity? We're starting to notice how we walk and how we are uncomfortable with this and like that. And then it moves on to eating and before you know, by the afternoon, you're certainly before that, the mind comes in, feelings come in, everything's there. And the heart of this practice is beginning with what we have. In other words, being right there with what we have. And it's not just for beginners. I've been doing this for a while. And it's the same for me. Because we're always just who we are from moment to moment. It's a very humbling thought. This afternoon I had a nice chat with Rodney, who's on the staff here and who's been sitting for a long time and been a monk. And we kind of converged on this point, which I think is why I'm talking about it. About how the beauty of the practice, if you're doing it, is that it helps you become more human. It helps you become what you already are more fully. In the deepest sense, you might say Buddha nature and your original nature, enlightened, our full potential. True. But I'm saying even at the beginning, maybe there's no point in even thinking of beginning. It's sort of every moment as a beginning. Is that we're waking up to how it is to be us right now in this moment. And then we just keep doing that. And then we forget to do that. And we create illusory notions about ourselves. All kinds of dramatic, imaginary, fanciful, I wish I could only be, or I used to be. And we get lost in it. And that's okay too. The practice says, fine, beautiful. So you're the kind of person who has a lot of fantasies about what you think you should be. That's all. It's not saying crush them out. We're being very respectful to absolutely every aspect of our existence, without exception. Totally without exception. That's where the continuity comes in, and that's, in a way, where the practice becomes quite ruthless in its gentleness. Because it's asking you to be who you are from moment to moment. And... Apparently, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. It's kind of training.
to learn how to get to where we are, from where we are to where we are. Which sounds like a silly exercise, and it would be, except for the fact that we're always trying to get from where we are to where we think we should be. Which is some ideal and some imaginary notion about how it could be if we were. But it isn't what we are in that moment. I'm not on grass. (laughs) It's just coming out this way. You sit for a few months and you'll sound this incoherent too. So we always seem to want other things. We don't want to be where we are or be with the people that we're with or eat what we have or want, 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 want. And what we don't seem to want is what we already have. And these instructions are gently but firmly returning our attention to what we already have and emphasizing that from moment to moment. You can't miss it after a while, or you really will stop doing this practice. And I'm not saying that some of the things that the books talk about, extraordinary you know, lights and incredible joy, and sure, that happens too, but the, this is a lifetime practice, a lifetime sentence. It really is. It's not a weekend retreat. You know, if you... Th- Maybe some of you have had some nice meditation experiences, those who are really beginners, although it happens to all of us at whatever level. You know, you sat for a few hours and you felt some clarity. Wow! And if I go away to Barry, let's see, look at this schedule, and they sit for 10, 12 hours a day, and I felt this good just sitting my little half 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. So if I multiply that by two days <laughs> times 12 hours, I'll be that much more joyful and at peace and compassionate, I can't wait to get there. <laughs> and those of us who came, who come here for three months and longer, to some degree, some of the motivation may be that too. You feel so good doing what, as much meditation as you're doing in quotes out there that you come running to here and thinking that it'll just multiply in some kind of uh, mathematical way. It doesn't quite go that way. Have you noticed? <laughs> It's so unpredictable. You just have to keep picking up the string and beginning and beginning so that it sounds corny, but it's literally true that you just keep beginning. It is really a practice for beginners because you're attentive and you're with yourself exactly as you are and then you lose it. And maybe five minutes go by or five hours go by, five days go by, and then you pick it up again and you start again. Just what is it? How is it now? And it just keeps being that endlessly from moment to moment, whether you're at Barry or in Cambridge or sitting or walking. There's absolutely no place to get to. There's no escape. There's just us following us wherever we are. And the practice is helping us to really zero in on that, to really pay attention to the texture of each moment for ourselves. That means that the most ordinary and most routine, seemingly humdrum type things that happen 
are as valuable as what seem to be extraordinary spiritual meditation experiences. And the reason they are is because that's what our life is at that moment. That's all. That is actually our life at that moment. Having to go to the toilet for the 200,000th time and noticing that the toilet paper roll, you know, it's almost used up and that if you use it, then you'll have to put a new roll, a new roll of toilet paper on the roll. I don't know if you've, have you noticed that? I see that at IMS a lot. In fact, what people will do is that they'll leave just a little bit of paper. So that way they don't have to take a new roll. They don't have to feel, well, I used up the last bit of paper and I'm going to be a good yogi and generosity and all that. Uh, so you just leave a little bit hanging. So the next person comes in, they have to take that roll and put it onto the thing. And how many more times do we have to go through this? Brushing our teeth and, you know, getting dressed. And this practice is saying, it's fully acknowledging that there's a certain tedium, you know, after, let's say, teenage, when you've gone to the toilet for the millionth time. (laughs) You know, and done so many things over and over and over and over and over. There's a a Zen uh, exchange that's somewhat relevant, I feel, to our situation regarding that. A Zen student asked the Zen master, we're endlessly dressing and eating. How do we get out of that? Implying, you know, just the enormous tedium of it, the routineness of it. And the Zen master answered, we dress and we eat. And then the student said, I don't understand. And so the teacher said back, well then, just go and get dressed and eat. What's being said is that if we do it totally, or as if there's full attention to that, simply because that's what's happening, we happen to be brushing our teeth. We happen to be tying our shoelaces. If there's full attention, if there's real openness, there's just brushing our teeth, then it's not tedious. Then we've escaped. That's how we've gotten out of it. So you kill the tedium, not by killing it. It's only a concept anyway. Each thing is happening fresh each moment. Even that brushing of the teeth is the first time it's happened quite that way. But because we live in memory so much, rather than the actuality of what's happening, we have this obstinate familiarity of how many more times do I have to brush my teeth? And floss, that's even worse. (laughs) For some of us, impossible. But when it's just brushing your teeth, when we're really there doing it, the whole quality of consciousness is very different. And it almost has nothing to do with what you're doing, but how you do it. Someone in one of the retreats like this, who really heard, you know, who suggested that in cutting up the vegetables, really cut the vegetables. And this person did it and was ecstatic. They said, I'm a cook and I have to chop up, you know, vegetables a lot. And during the work here, I cut up the broccoli and it was just incredible. It was just wonderful because I was really 
alert. I was really fully doing it, cutting up the broccoli. And the person was ecstatic. It was really a very wonderful experience. And I've been cutting up vegetables for years, and it, it's been okay, but not like this. <laughs> okay. So if you get literal about it, then we'd all go running after broccoli and knives and, you know, start cutting it up. The joy isn't in the broccoli or in the knife, is that that person was fully alive in that moment doing that particular task. That's what they were doing at that moment. Let's take uh, some of the, from what I've gathered, there's a bit of confusion as to how to work with physical pain. Have any of you had some discomfort today? (laughs) It's a rhetorical question. And maybe we can apply this very simple perspective of just taking account very simply and innocently of how things are for us right in this moment. We can use pain, and if you move with me through this regarding pain, you'll see that perhaps it can be helpful in other areas of the practice, what are sometimes called the hindrances or just obstacles to what it is that we want. We want clarity and serenity and all that kind of stuff. Instead, we get pain. But that's the truth. It's not good or bad. It's just true that we find that our ankle hurts. So that's what you have at that moment. Your life includes an ankle. That's like that. And maybe mine doesn't. Maybe mine is the ear. Okay, you're sitting. And you find that a part of your body is troubled. What we call pain. We're already in trouble when we call it pain. Or is to call it P-A-I-N, that's a very bad word. It's already a condemnation. You know, shrieking and howling and dentist's office and doctor's offices and fist fights. Every, all the associations with that term, pain. As soon as we just, we verbally connect with that experience and all it is is some sensations, let's say, in the leg. There is, very often there's not much of a gap. The sensations occur, pain. And then if pain comes, what's very close to it is, oh my God, how am I going to get out of this one? Why did I come here? There must be more to meditation than this. I'm too old for this. This is only for young people. What, you know, I'm doing it wrong. There must be a way to do it right. I hate meditation. When is the bell going to ring? And before you know it, it's reached epidemic proportions. Okay, let's back off. Let's see how that was produced, how that came about. All that happened, these, you know, some of these cells in the body, they're rearranging, they don't like it. You know, it's been keeping your leg in a certain way for a long period of time, and they feel tired of being that way. They want to move around and dance, and you're keeping your leg a certain way. So they start pounding at you and saying, you know, we've had enough of this. Step number one is that, let's say you're working with the breath, and clearly this has become a problem, these sensations in the body. And it's taking you away from the breath. At that moment, let go of the breath. And just bring a very gentle, open attentiveness. I'm going to have to call it pain. 
but it's pain in quotes. Or as we know, there's a difference between the name and what the name is pointing to. It's very important. I hope you'll see that. So we bring a very gentle but firm attention to those sensations in the body, or it could be the mind, but for right now, let's limit it to the body. And we listen. I'm using listening now as a metaphor. We, we just very carefully listen to the body for what it's saying at that moment. Then the question is how to do it. Are we really doing it correctly? A few hints. The listening that's being suggested here has no motive in it of accomplishing anything. In other words, if you're listening to the pain in order to get rid of it, you're not listening to it. Because part of your attention is on those sensations and another part is in future tense, wishing that this were over, wishing that you'd be home already, wishing that you're at tea, whatever it is, a yoga class, whatever. Now, how to get the mind to observe, to listen without any motive? You can't force it. That would be exhausting and violent. But what you can do is begin to see how hard it is for the mind to just simply look and to simply listen. That is, we've had so much training in terms of when we look at anything, it's motivated. What am I going to get out of it? We look at a person. Is that a relationship or is it not a relationship? Is that, you know, business transaction, academic advantage, some kind of advantage? Or we look at nature, we categorize it, some kind of botanical thing. And I want to be nice if I could own that, if I could get that, maybe I will, maybe I can buy it. So it's so hard to just look, a kind of almost an aesthetic appreciation of whatever it is that's in front of you. It's usually colored with some gaining idea, something that we want out of the looking. Moreover, the looking is conditioned by our whole history of how we've related to that particular things or things like it. And what we're learning here is this art of a very simple just being there and letting the body reveal itself, letting the body talk and tell its story in its own So that means the less you do, the more you learn. But it's not conceptual learning. Whereas you're really just there. And you're hearing the body reveal itself. You're hearing the body tell its story in its own language. And if you can do nothing but just really be totally there for it, it's quite astonishing as to what happens. It seems as if the pain, what we call pain, diminishes or it even disappears altogether. It turns out to be something else. Now, what I'm trying to say is that what we're doing is, in a sense, uncoupling. You know, if you think of, let's say, trains that are coupled, linked. If we're not sensitive to the the fact that the mind is one thing and the body is another, there is this very simple approach to how it is for us in each moment, Something happens to the body, those sensations, and immediately the mind gets involved in it and it makes up a story about it. Oh my God, this is awful, this is terrible, gangrene's going to set in, they're going to have to operate. You know, all the different kinds of things. Now, if we can't separate what the mind is adding to the body, it becomes suffering. It's no longer just pain, it's now suffering. Because the mind and body get mixed in together. 
and there's no clarity on our part. So that the concept plus the experience becomes real suffering. The most important concept of all that makes the suffering, makes it suffering, takes these sensations and makes it really very, very difficult is the concept of I. It's my pain. This pain belongs to me. How could this be happening to me? I want to be comfortable. And it's sort of a personal affront. It feels terrible that this is my body and I'm in pain and me, 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 I, I, I. And as the mind learns to be more simple and just come to the body and see the body as the body and the mind as the mind, they're related, but they're really they're different. And so we just, just experience the body. And then when the mind goes on and starts making up all kinds of stories and interpretations as to what is happening with the body, we don't stamp that out because that's what we have at that moment. That's our possession. That's how we're manifesting. We listen to it, but we hear it for what it is. The mind is making up a story for the bodily experience. And sometimes, now and then, it's even an intelligent story that's appropriate. I'm not saying don't listen to it. It might be very appropriate to, in terms of guidance as to rearrange your posture. It might say, look, I don't care what they say about not moving. You better move because this is too much for you. Okay, I'll do it. So I'm not saying don't listen to the mind. But as you, as you increase your sensitivity to this interplay between mind and body, you start to become more and more sensitive to where the mind is intelligent and in accordance and aligned with reality, with what's happening to the body, and where it's just way out of line, and where there's just a lot of projecting and paranoia and terror and imagination, and where it's making life much, much more difficult for us. Let me um, give you an example. I've been trying to develop examples that don't come from agricultural ancient India, but that apply to, to this teaching. Just for a comic relief, you know, just now and then something about our society. The only thing that came to mind about how, to, how the analogy to this would be Remember, this is, again, staying with physical pain. Say you're watching TV and there's a sporting event on, assuming that you like sports and you understand. Let's say it's a basketball game. And you know the rules and the players and it's a nice big screen, color, the whole thing. And you know exactly what's happening. You can see it. It's being shown to you on the screen. But then there's also an announcer and the announcer gets paid for talking about what's happening on the screen. You know what I mean? In a certain way. And if the announcer is for the home team, they talk about what's happening in a certain way because they're talking to patrons of that team. If the announcer is for the other team, they talk about it in a slightly different way because they know that their audience wants to hear it a certain way. And so the levels of excitement and ecstasy and disappointment and tension or the point is that somebody is creating a reality with words about what you can plainly see in front of you. The two come together. And as you're watching the announcer and those just bare physical images create, in a way, another reality, which your mind 
enters into. Now, so if you just turn the announcer off for a mo- few moments, you can see exactly what's happening. You know all the players, you know the rules, and you see it just the way it is. Then you turn the announcer on. And the announcer is, you know, at the top of his lungs when certain things are happening that are for, the, for this team. The mind is a little bit like the announcer. <laughs> you know, constantly exaggerating and feeling just terrible about itself and wonderful and just, well, and life is happening the way it's happening. The, you know, the basketball game is just happening. Balls are going through hoops and, you know, people are running in short pants down, down the floor. You know, it's just, just the way it's happening with sneakers. It's just all happening that way. So if we can't see that difference between that mind and body, in fact, one of the early meanings of insight is insight into the difference between mind and body. It's one of the levels, early levels of insight meditation. It's not trivial to be able to see that difference. And it can help free us from a lot of unnecessary sorrow. So it's a simple activity. It's, it's beginning with what we have from moment to moment. We have this body a certain way. And we have this mind a certain way. And we are not being asked to change it, to trade your mind in as if you could. But what we're being asked to is to notice carefully, very respectfully, lovingly, just how does our mind work about what's happening to our body right now. And that turns out to be a radical step to make. And the practice, that's what I meant at the outset, is a, a simple quality that we're developing of, it's a kind of honesty, of being with our life as it actually is, learning how to do that, and living from there with others. And we do it so much by finding out when we don't do it. Because as awareness becomes sharper, uh, it's pretty painful when you're off. I mean, it's just a false note. and You can hear it. A final, just kind of practical hint with pain, because I know a number of you are really struggling today. When you bring that awareness to the area that, let's say, is troubled, no matter what you've heard being said tonight, it's very hard to not look at it with a certain intensity and wanting to be rid of it. As a result, we kind of zero in on the pained area, and it's not just looking or just listening. It's very, very highly motivated. And I found that one thing that can help soften that is if you're in pain is to not immediately bring the awareness to that. I mean, of course, it will go to it as soon as you know it. But then sort of encircle it with awareness. And then very gently enclose it until finally you're just there with it. In fact, you can be with it and feel the whole body even better. And often what will happen is those energies, which in a sense are trapped in that little part of the body that's under pain, When you experience it in the context of the whole body, it's like those painful energies are reabsorbed, diffused, and somehow it all feels less than you thought it was. Not as as bad. Okay. um, So the attitude is one of moving through our day here, and we still have tonight and all much of tomorrow, in a very simple way, not expecting things to turn out a certain way, and if we do, noticing what happens often doesn't happen. 
seeing what that means for us when we have expectations that are thwarted. Learning from everything that's going on here, a simple thing like the breath. One person, you hear the instructions and you're following in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, and your mind wanders a lot. One person will respond to that by becoming very tight and willful. Okay, I'll, I'll show the mind. And probably that's how we've dealt with everything that's come up in our life, with powerful will and uh, an idea of accomplishing something, force, violence towards ourselves and perhaps others. Another person, the same pattern of inattention to the breath, and the person gets discouraged. I'll never learn it. Everyone in the hall is in ecstasy. I'm the only one sitting here alone. I can't even find my nostrils, let alone the breath. (laughs) And then perhaps a question, a well-placed question from time to time. Do I do that in other things? You know, when things don't go my way, do I quit? Do I do that in other things when things don't go my way? I try to power my way through. So you can see, you learn it's self-knowledge. This is a, all wisdom paths are founded on that, self-knowledge. And that's, that's what we're embarking on. That's what we're doing. And it's a never-ending journey. It's a marathon. Anyone have any questions or comments about what's been said or your own experience? Yes. Sure. If it were re- what you call what? Yes. Yeah, that that doesn't sound like my experience, but it may be yours. Um, when you're when it's habit, you see, if you were aware, then you then then there's freshness. It isn't habit. You can be doing the thing, and and the body knows what to do. In other words, the movements are, you've done them many, many times, so you, so you know what to do. The problem with habit is that very often that we're asleep. And so what seems more likely is that we do know how to brush our teeth and it happens just, we may even get into all the cracks and you know, hit the gums the right way and do everything the dentist said. And in the meantime, what we're doing while we're doing that is solving Einstein's formula of relativity. And people will often say, well, why do I have to waste my time on such a trivial thing as brushing my teeth when I could be planning out my day while I'm doing that, or etc. There's something to be gained from being with the brushing of the teeth. In other words, to bring that meditative state that you obviously do value, to bring it to bear on the activity that you happen to be carrying out. Now, I don't mean to make that a rigid principle, because there are times in life where you may, may have to make, do some very quick thinking about things while doing something else. And we're pretty gifted. We can learn how to do that. So I don't mean to harden it into an absolute, because I don't know that anything can be done with that way without causing trouble. What I am suggesting is 
in and of itself, those tiny little behaviors, like brushing your teeth, are trivial, let's say. Not from a dental point of view. You know, from a, a consciousness point of view. <laughs> you know, it takes up, let's say, a minute or whatever, and why not? Why not fantasize or plan out what you're going to make for breakfast? Or, you know, what is he taking that away from us? You know, what do we need to be with the, the, the arm, feeling that and all that? In and of itself, it's perhaps trivial. But you see, the problem is that our life is made up. It's like a mosaic. It's made up of all these seemingly trivial moments. Where does it stop? Well, then taking out the garbage. That's also trivial. Making the bed is trivial. And, you know, washing the dishes is trivial. And before you know it, you realize my whole life is just a big bore. It's just all routine. Except Saturday night it'll change. Or during the summer vacation or the three-month course. Everything will be different then. So... What this is designed to do is, in a sense, to uproot that whole way of living and to bring awareness into each moment. And in a way, precisely because it's trivial or mundane, it has tremendous learning potential. See, because from another point of view, that is your life at that moment. See, this practice, another way of putting it is that we're learning how to live more fully. And our life is made up of these routine activities, one after the other. And the degree to which we can be fresh and alert and alive in them is a statement, I think a profound statement, of the quality of our life. Rather than having particular outstanding moments that stand for our life, you know, ecstatic experiences that come around once every few months, and so that's the logic behind it. But if you don't want to pay attention to your, to your teeth, full speed ahead. Yeah. Any, anything else? Sure. Um, I wonder if you could talk about um, fantasy and planning the future in the way that you talked about pain. Yes. Do you know? Mm-hmm. In a group like this, there was, uh, um, it was a 10-week class on meditation um, and a fellow who was obviously loving it and benefiting it. And then in the 10th week, uh, everyone went around the room and said how it was for them. And he was sad. He said, I really am a little depressed. I mean, now that this is over and, you know, I love this whole thing about being in the moment and not getting caught up in the future and past and all that. He said, but my job, I'm a city planner. Do I have to quit my job? (laughs) You know, his profession is planning. Planning mind, planning, planning. That's, it's no. He, he should be able to be a better planner. In other words, when he's planning, then he would know he's doing planning. This, in other words, we do have to plan. I had a plan not to come here. This is unplanned. I got, this morning I wound up here. You know, not, I thought I was going to be in my little, nice little room meditating, but I wound up here. But I have had to plan a lot of things. You know, it's more that you don't get lost in the plans and that the planning doesn't come to replace the present actuality. That we live in what might be, in other words, the fantasy, so much that we never attend to our actual life. Okay, to get to fantasy, it's not that fantasy has to be abolished. In fact, if it comes up, we would become aware of it, of the fantasy. But here's where inquiry becomes important. If the mind is spending a lot of time in fantasy, and you see that, you know, in other words, you take stock of yourself, which is what all I've been saying. 
You see that my mind seems to do a lot. It's in the future a lot. I'll do this, and then I'll do that, and then when I'm this, I'll when I meet this person, etc. And then you investigate, and you start to notice, and perhaps you may find, as many people have, that there's a strong relationship between a lot of doing of that fantasy work and unfulfillment, a lack of fulfillment in the present, in our actual life. And so we're avoiding coming to terms with certain problems because of anxiety. And so there's a lack of fulfillment which is compensated by jumping into a fantasy, a maybe world, that will happen in the, in the near future. And we go from one near future to the next near future. So that if you see through that, then that's, it's liberating. It then points to action. It means that there is an area where some work needs to be done. There is a place where we find ourselves limited. Meditation, it's not all going to be solved by just sitting on the cushion. If you have that fantasy, uh, good luck. The cushion has to be connected with, you know, you have to leave the cushion at some point. You have to go to the toilet. You have to wash, and at some point we all leave here. Most of us, anyway. (laughs) So, you're, you're getting at that very interesting area connecting action and, and uh, the sitting practice. And so someone else may be a creative writer and the fantasies may be used to produce all kinds you know, stories or whatever. It's not that that doesn't have its place and it can be quite rich. But the question is, are you using fantasy or is fantasy using you? Yes. I don't know. Don't assume that, you know, if you go to the Orient, everyone is sitting in deep states of samadhi meditating. It's not true. They're probably trying to scheming as some way to get into MIT. 
Okay, so what the, the question is how to work with that situation? Yes. Yeah. I don't really, I wouldn't have an answer for you. I think that, you know, your own expertise at some point will help you. But the degree to which you can be clear about what's happening and and you can see what they're doing, clearly part of, for all immigrant groups that have come to to go from any one culture to another, re-education is essential. If that particular immigrant group doesn't learn how to live in this culture, there are always problems of isolation and frustration and so forth. So the question turns out how to help them learn how to live in this society because this is where they are. I I can't tell you how to do that, but certainly if you can establish some kind of trust with them, then that's the beginnings of helping them to understand that this is, you know, tracing it out. And even let's let's assume that it's true that in that culture there isn't as much future orientation still, because of what you described, they may have to learn how to live in a certain way which is necessary now. And so, just you staying clear can help you with that process of their re-education, but I wouldn't know how to do it. This is designed to help us, and any social situation that you're in, of course, anything that helps us will help the whole situation. One quick one, sure. How do you monitor whether the fantasy is overtaking us or if we are in control of it? Yeah. And if we are in control of it, it sounds like redundant with the work of the possible to be in control. Yeah. Uh, what I meant was, let's say you're sitting in meditation and, and uh, the fantasy comes upon you. It's there in your head. If you're in the fantasy... It's like a soap opera and you're in it. You know, you're, you've identified with what's going on. There's not, probably not much awareness. They don't seem to go together. Whereas if the fantasy comes up and you know that fantasizing is happening, it's very different. Then, then you're out of it. Unfortunately, you might have to let go of the fantasy because what often happens is that the fantasies aren't as real as they, as they seem to be. And, and in the light of awareness, they just fall apart. So many things do. Have any of you noticed? If you really look at it, it's not as solid as we think it is. Underline think. So, uh, but sometimes, you know, we kind of can hear the fantasy revealing itself and it can even teach us things that are, let's say, unconscious in us. Uh, but we're really listening. We're not caught up in it. When you're caught up in it, I guess the test would be uh, the degree to which you're mindful of it, you're not identified. You can't be both identified and mindful at the same time. So that if if you're really mindful of what's happening, then you're not caught in identifying with it. And you'll see it as an impermanent process that comes up and it's gone. Sounds simple. It does, because I always, well, I have trouble with not being attached to what I fantasize. I understand. If that's part of my mind. Yes. Okay, Okay, then we move to the next thing, which is interesting. The fantasy comes up and then you notice I did what it says, I became aware of it, and the fantasy never even got a chance to finish. You know, and then you feel, I feel cheated. I used to, I used to enjoy my fantasies, and now Vipassana has taken them away from me. You know, something like that. 
and it's, it's really nice to just luxuriate in a kind of, you know, what those things do for us. Okay, there's where I mean there's a, that intersection between action and meditation. And sometimes there's a real choice that one has to make. Which fork in the road do you want to walk? And I don't, I don't say it to you knowing you at all. I'm speaking to me, all of us. It often points to the fact that if you want to grow, you have to let go of certain things. You know, they've served you to some degree as a compensation for a while. But if you keep doing it that way, they're going to keep, keep you from any real depth and growth. It's something like, if I'm sitting right here in uh, Massachusetts and I say I want to go to Rhode Island, you know, and I can start to kind of move, and I'm almost in Rhode Island, you know, I'm almost, and I still have my foot, and, you know, I, at some point I really have to raise up this foot and just get out of Massachusetts and be totally in Rhode Island. And if I want to have them both at the same time, which is often what we face, then that itself is something that we have to work with in meditation. There's a Jewish proverb which says you can't evacuate your bowels. It comes out a little different, but this is a public place. You can't evacuate your bowels on two toilet seats at the same time. (laughs) Maybe we should end on that note. (laughs) 